Welcome to Now Appalachia. The Appalachian region covers 13 states in the U.S. and over 25 million people call the region home. This podcast profiles the authors and publishers with connections to Appalachia and how the region influences and impacts their creative work. And now, here's your host, author and Appalachian resident, Elliot Parker. And hello, friends. We welcome you once again to another episode of Now Appalachia here on the Authors on the Air Global Radio Network as we continue profiling the outstanding authors with connections and publications linked to Appalachia. And we continue bringing those to you uh, here on the program and hopefully sharing some insights not only into the Appalachian region and Appalachian culture, but also to the great writers who are profiling uh, Appalachia and its culture and its people through both their literary works as well as their nonfiction works. And we're glad to have you with us today for another episode. And let me ask you a question. What if there was a place where people weren't constantly scrolling where forest hikes were never tainted by a ringtone, where getting lost meant really getting lost. These questions are the profile and featured in a brand new book by author Stephen Kersey, and it is called The Quiet Zone, Unraveling the Mystery of a Town Suspended in Silence. And this is an Appalachian town suspended in silence. And I'm so glad to have uh, Stephen Kersey on the program with us today to talk about this new book. And he joins us as an award-winning journalist. His work has appeared in the New York Times, the New Yorker, and Christian Science Monitor, amongst other publications. He graduated from the Columbia University Graduate School of Journalism, where he was a 2016-2017 Knight Beghout Fellow in Economics and Business Journalism. And he is the author of this new book, The Quiet Zone, and we are so delighted to have him with us today to write to talk to us about this book, which was written about a very small and unique town in West Virginia that people like me who are from the area are probably familiar with, but a lot of folks are not. So, Stephen, welcome to the program. Good to have you with us today. Elliot, it's so great to be here. Thanks for having me on. My pleasure. So before we get to your book, I I wanted to ask you one question just to sort of start off our discussion. I understand that you have not owned a cell phone in nearly a decade. Why is that? So it's actually been more than a decade at this point. I, I threw away my very first and last cell phone in 2009. And I was living in Cambodia at the time, and I knew I would be traveling internationally for a few months and that my cell phone wasn't going to work anyways. It was a kind of dinky old Samsung flip phone. And so I just threw it away and thinking, hey, I'll get a new one when I need it. And then when I got back to the United States, I was reluctant to invest in a uh, you know, fancy new iPhone or smartphone and you know, the two-year data plan. I was a, you know, just struggling to get by as it was as a, as a journalist. I didn't want to put out that money. But then that decision evolved into like an experiment of like, well, everybody around me seems to have a smartphone or a cell phone of some kind. What would it be like to go for a bit of time without a smartphone? And then it evolved further into this philosophical aversion to a device that a growing amount of research shows hijacks our attention, undermines democracy, uh, erodes our ability to have in-person conversations and concentrate and live in the moment. And not to mention has been credited with an increase in car accidents and you know teen depression and many other social ills. And at this point, it's at the point where uh, I feel like my life is no worse and is in many ways better for not having a smartphone. Fantastic. I'm so jealous to hear that when I read that about you. I'm so jealous because I have many days and moments 
throughout each day and throughout the week where I would like to just throw mine into the nearest uh, dumpster or the nearest body of water and never look at it again. But And you can. You can do it, Elliot. I know. I should. I really should. I really ought to just rear back and let it go. But then but then I'm afraid of work and other things would would, would, would not like that too well. But I, I love the fact that you've been able to do that. I'm so jealous that you've been able to do it and be so successful uh, as well. So your book, The Quiet Zone, Stephen, focuses on the community and culture of a place called Green Bank, West Virginia, which has been dubbed the quietest town in America, and it's home to the Green Bank Observatory. So tell us, where is Green Bank, West Virginia, first of all, and what is the Green Bank Observatory? So, so like I just said to you, like you could throw your phone away, and you said to me, no, I, I can't. Like There's just too much time me to my phone. There's too many connections that I have. There's too many, you know, reasons for work and family and social connections that are tethering me to it that wouldn't allow me to throw it away. And I went to Green Bank on the idea of like, maybe there's a place where you could throw it away, where there wouldn't be those, you know, strong connections to a smartphone and a culture of constant connectivity that would allow you to break away from that device. And that's because of it being the home of the Green Bank Observatory. So the Green Bank Observatory, it was founded back in 1956. It's America's very first national radio astronomy observatory. And radio astronomy, it, it was a fairly new uh, astronomy uh, science back in the 50s. It measures these incredibly faint radio waves coming into Earth from the far reaches of the universe. And you have to, in order to pick up those faint radio waves, you have these radio telescopes. It's like a big TV dish, it essentially looks like. And they're picking up these radio waves, kind of like your TV dish would pick up a, a TV signal. But because those astronomical radio waves are so you know, faint because they've traveled millions of light years to get to here to Earth, it's really hard to pick them up. And so you need to have a really quiet radio environment in order to do that radio astronomy work. Um, and Green Bank was determined back in the 50s to be the quietest suitable place in the Eastern United States to have this radio astronomy observatory. It's quiet because of natural reasons. Um, it's, it's in a very sparsely populated town, a very sparsely populated county. To this day, the county only has about 8,000 people, only three stoplights, uh, not quite as few as in Monroe County where you're from, but where there are zero stoplights, but only three stoplights, only one high school. Uh, not a single highway goes through the entire county of Pocahontas and two thirds of it is, is state or federal forest. So it's, it's quiet naturally. And Green Bank itself is surrounded by this ring of mountains, which really act as a, as a barrier to the outside world's noise. It makes it harder for radio noise to come into the Green Bank area. So it's naturally quiet. And then for the past half century, since the observatory was founded, it's been protected by state and federal laws. So in 1956, the West Virginia uh, legislature passed something called the West Virginia Radio Astronomy Zoning Act, which made it so that within a 10 mile radius of any radio astronomy observatory in the state, um, which really only applies to Green Bank, it would be essentially illegal to emit any radio noise that interferes with those telescopes. And then in 1958, the U.S. Congress uh, updated the federal code, the federal statutes, to create a national radio quiet zone. It was the very first of its kind in the world. It's really become a model for all other radio astronomy quiet zones worldwide. And it's our only quiet zone in America today. And it's this 13,000 square mile area, for context, that's the size of Connecticut and Massachusetts combined, where 
if you want to install any kind of fixed antenna or installation, you have to get approval first from the Quiet Zone Administrator, who is based at the Green Bank Observatory. And she gives you essentially a yay or nay uh, decision on if your installation is going to interfere with their radio telescopes. So it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a really cool place. It's you know, radio astronomy in Green Bank, which is only happening because it's quiet both naturally and by essentially bureaucracy. And you had a really great experience sort of immersing yourself in the Appalachian culture there uh, in Green Bank. And we learned as we read the book that you spent a lot of time with the locals. And we'll, we'll talk about the research that you had to put into this book in just a minute. But you drank moonshine, you shot guns, you did cave dives, you had kind of the, the true Appalachian experience when you were living there. But one of the things that you really emphasized in the book, which I found so interesting, is that you found that um, this is a place because of its kind of live and let live environment and culture, it has attracted all kinds of people from all over the country and all over the world. Um, but that the, the fact that even though there is a, a sort of an impact that the absence of technology has had on all these people's lives, these people are still willing to come together and help each other in times of need. Can you talk a little bit about some of the general themes and threads that kind of ran through the different groups of people that you interviewed and sort of how they view their, their life, their community, and kind of this uh, culture or this environment that they inhabit there uh, in Pocahontas County? Yeah. Yeah, it's a big question because the book explores so many different characters and, 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 and groups that have, have come to the quiet zone over the past half century because it's quiet. And that's not even including all the people who have lived there for, for centuries. You know, the, the, the first white people to settle that area whose families sit today, you know, farm on the land. You know, you mentioned it yourself. There is this theme through all of those people and characters of like live and let live of, you know, I'll mind my business and you can mind your business. And as long as we don't, you know, cross each other's fences, there isn't going to be a, a problem. Like the radio astronomers came there in the 50s because they wanted to get away from it all. They wanted to get away from all that radio noise, essentially go to a place where they could be isolated and be left alone. And that same, those same aspects, you know, have fed into other groups and, and the culture of that area. In the 60s, on the heels of the radio astronomers, uh, a large wave of hippies and back to the landers came to Pocahontas County, which is really where Green Bank is. It's kind of like the heart of the quiet zone. And they came into Pocahontas County, into the quiet zone, because they wanted to get away from it all. They wanted to get away from modern society and live on you know, homesteads and live this back to the land experience. Um, one of those hippies who came was a guy named Patch Adams. He's this uh, hippie clown physician who was made famous by the 1998 film starring Robin Williams. And he started, uh, well, he established his quote unquote gazoon type institute there. And it was meant to be, you know, evolve into this free hospital eventually. It's not a hospital to this day, despite him having raised millions of dollars, I discovered, for, for this, you know, supposed hospital. But he went there because it was cheap land where he could, you know, gather there with his friends and, you know, get away from it all. Five years or so after Patch Adams moved in came a wave of neo-Nazis and white supremacists. And, and not just any group of neo-Nazis, but the National Alliance led by William Luther Pierce, who is the author of the Turner Diaries, considered the 
Bible of the racist right. It's a book that's been linked to dozens of hate crimes and racist incidences with you know, deadly consequences around the world, uh, most infamously the 1995 Oklahoma City bombing where the perpetrator, Timothy McVeigh, was found with this book, uh, The Turner Diaries, in his car afterward. So uh, uh, William Luther Pierce moved to the Quiet Zone and had his National Alliance organization there for about 20 years. It's, he was there for 20 years until his death and the organization is still there in the Quiet Zone just south of the Green Bank Observatory because he wanted to get away from it all because he was looking to get away from law enforcement and civil rights groups and minorities and other people who had been badgering him, quote unquote, badgering him back in the Washington DC area where he used to live. He wanted to get away from it all. More recently, a group looking to get away from it all in the quiet zone in this you know, perhaps last great swath of radio quiet in America are a group of people known as the electrosensitives. They have a fairly new modern illness called electromagnetic hypersensitivity. And if anybody out there has seen the show Better Call Saul, this will ring a bell. The character of, uh, of Chuck McGill has this allergy, this illness where he can feel radio waves coming from the electrical breakers, from Wi-Fi, from a cell phone, from a smartphone, from Wi-Fi. And he needs that, that all turned off when he's around. He surrounds, you know, he kind of wraps himself in this silver blanket to kind of help ward off all those radio waves. There's thousands of people like Chuck McGill in real life around the world. Hundreds of them have moved to the Green Bank area over the past decade and a half, looking to get away from it all. They feel like Green Bank and the quiet zone around it is their last refuge in a noisy world. So really it's this aspect of you know, getting it away from it all that's pulled in so many people and such a diverse like range of characters to the quiet zone of the past half century. And that I explore in the book. We're speaking with Stephen Kersey on this episode of Now Appalachia. His new book is called The Quiet Zone, Unraveling the Mystery of a Town Suspended in Silence. And that town uh, is located uh, in Pocahontas County, West Virginia. It is Green Bank, West Virginia, labeled the quietest town in America. And we've been talking about uh, that as well as the Green Bank Observatory. And Stephen, we'll get back to the book in just a minute. But I wanted to ask you first uh, just a little bit about your career. You've been a journalist now for a long time. Your works appeared in the New York Times, the New Yorker, the Christian Science Monitor, a lot of uh, very big and nationally respected publications. What made you interested in journalism uh, as a career? And, and what are your thoughts as you sort of look around the media landscape today with, uh, you know, tweeting and blogging and 24-hour news channels and all of that, kind of the state of journalism today? Um. I guess I'll start with the latter. <laughs> you, you can imagine as somebody who doesn't have a smartphone, how I feel about the 24 seven news cycle. I think it's, I think it's totally unnecessary. I think it's, uh, what's the word? It's, it's, it, you know, it's as, it can be as addictive as any other, it, you know, social media app that kind of sucks us in and won't let us go. Like so much of it is just froth meant to glue your eyes to the screen. And it's really not, you know, the, the comedian Aziz Ansari, he, he, I, he once called it, it's like, it's like pro wrestling, you know, it's like WWF. It's just, it's just froth. It's just like entertainment. It's just people kind of, uh, it's just unnecessary for the most part. I, I, I really try and limit my news consumption to, you know, email newsletters and a couple of like feeds in the morning. And I'm kind of fairly much done with it for the day. Um, and I'll catch up with the next day if it's really important enough. 
then it'll be in the newspaper the next morning when I read it. Like, I really don't feel the need to be checking the news all the time. And a, a lot of the news environment is not something that I personally even want to be a part of. Like, uh, uh, it's really such a, such a joy and a privilege to be able to work on a book where I can kind of set my own agenda for how I want to cover this at what pace and at what, you know, at, at what level I think things are worth covering, what, what rises to the worth uh, of, of attention and of other people's attention. Um, I, I, I really focus on community news. That's really been my focus and my, you know, my experience since I became a journalist after college in 2005. Um, I guess I, I enjoyed writing, you know, in elementary school. And then in high school, I started working for, or not working, but just writing for the, my high school newspaper in Norwich, Connecticut. Um, and I enjoyed it and I kind of continued doing it into college. Uh, it was when I read the book, The Shipping News by Annie Prowl that I kind of remember making that conscious decision. I think I want to do this as a career. If you haven't read The Shipping News, it's a wonderful novel about this kind of downtrodden character named Coyle who goes to Newfoundland, the island of Newfoundland, Canada, and gets a job writing the shipping news for a small local newspaper. And in a funny way, this book like romanticized the hard scrabble, isolated, thankless life of a community newspaper journalist in an isolated, uh, remote location, which kind of speaks to what my life was like while I was working on this book in Green Bank, West Virginia. Um, and that kind of set me on the path to, to doing journalism. I wanted to do journalism where I can often like connect with people and, you know, be involved at community level where I, can, where I can feel and see those stories and be doing interviews. Really interviews are a driving force behind a lot of the journalism that I do. And speaking of interviews, that's something about your book that I loved so well is the time and the effort and sort of the painstaking approach in some ways that you took to speak to so many different people uh, that inhabited the Green Bank area. And I just wanted to ask you a little bit about that. Uh, interviewing so many people, um, did you find it intimidating? Was it hard to kind of keep track of everything? And did you find that residents of the area were at some point and at some times sort of uh, reluctant to speak to you because that is sometimes a characteristic of Appalachian people when somebody comes in from the quote unquote outside and starts snooping around and asking a lot of questions sometimes there's some reticence there did, did you find that uh, as a characteristic of some of the people you've interviewed absolutely in, in general yeah I would say that that was a, a, a hurdle to get over in my reporting on this place and it's also it's also makes me wonder how so many other journalists write about this place when it's, they're just doing it by phone or going in for a day or two. Because there is that kind of wall, it makes it so that you have to spend more time there and you know get behind the facade of quiet or of whatever these people are kind of putting out before they'll let you see a little bit more of what they're really like or what their actual opinions are. So it, it was, I spent four months on the ground in Green Bank over a process of three years. And so because it was spread out over that time, there was a feeling of spending even more time there, like from 2017 to when I first went there to mid-2019 to my last time going there for picking up research for the book. I've since been back. There was a feeling of like really being able to track, you know, kids going through elementary school and then to high school and then from high school into college and being able to track like, you know, their changing opinions, inconsistencies, and some things they might have told me so that I could actually 
you know, pin them down on that and find out what they were really saying. Um, as an example of that, I, I, one that really sticks out to me is there's a young man named Matthias and I met him at a local general store. And the first time I, I spoke with him, he was like, don't have a cell phone, never had it, never missed it. And that's what a lot of people would say to me, this line of never had it, never missed it, which just kind of seemed a little bit insincere to me, right? Like you, you can, you can get on the internet, you can, you can get on TV, you can see what everybody else has. Like I've never had a sports car, but I still don't, you know, miss it. I still don't think, oh, it might be kind of cool to have a sports car. This idea of never had a smartphone, never had cell phone, never missed it, didn't quite ring true to me. And then sure enough, like about a year after I first spoke with Matthias, I saw him again at this general store, only this time he was with his dad. And at this point, I've been hearing that more and more people did have smartphones as well as Wi-Fi. And Matthias had said he didn't have either one. So I saw him and his dad and I was like, hey, so do you guys still not have Wi-Fi at your house? They're like, nope, no Wi-Fi. I'm like, really? Because more and more people do have Wi-Fi from what I'm hearing. So, so why are you holding out if everybody else around us does? in this town where supposedly is Wi-Fi is illegal. And they kind of look at each other and they look back at me and the dad says, actually we do have Wi-Fi. I had to laugh because the father, he's actually a local minister. So here he is breaking one of the 10 commandments. He's lying to me about something <laughs> as trivial as trivial as Wi-Fi, right? In what other town do people feel the need to lie about that? In what other place in the world do you have to get behind this facade of quiet? right? Before you can start finding out what technology people really have, because they're a little bit, you know, reticent to share it with you. So I asked him that, like, why didn't you want to share it with me? And he's like, well, you know, we want to be good partners to the observatory, the Green Bank Observatory. They provide a lot, provide a lot of jobs around here. However, when the fast lane is going 75 miles per hour, that's the lane you have to be in. Saying that, like, technology has advanced to the point where I feel like I need to have the latest stuff for my own kids, so that they're not put behind. We're chatting with author and journalist Stephen Kersey on the program today. This is now Appalachia, and his new book is The Quiet Zone, Unraveling the Mystery of a Town Suspended in Silence. And Stephen, uh, I want to ask you something else about your book, and I highlighted a line, and I don't, <coughs> excuse me, exactly remember who said this, but um, one resident you interviewed said, this place is, quote, a magnet for weirdos, unquote. And you kind of touched on some of the people there with the, the father and son a moment ago. But one of the things that you also talk about in the book is, um, despite kind of this idyllic sort of setting and sort of this idyllic idea of uh, you know, no communication and no cell phones and all of that, that there is sort of a dark side to this part uh, of Appalachia and this part of West Virginia that there are unsolved murders that have occurred there. There are bizarre suicides that have been a part uh, of life there for a long time. Uh, you mentioned all the colorful people that have migrated there uh, over the decades, in addition to the residents that have lived there uh, since the beginning. And you also touched on just a moment ago, the, the other thing I found so interesting is that people had Wi-Fi. Even the person, uh, the person you mentioned earlier who is supposed to be policing for electromagnetic interference has Wi-Fi. So despite the fact that on, on the outside as, as you're driving into Pocahontas County, and I know you and I both have, have, have made that drive, you really think you've kind of reached, uh, you know, uh, you know uh, I don't know, East of Eden or something like that, <laughs> or, or the Garden of Eden or Paradise, but there's sort of a, a darker side to that area. And I was wondering, um, 
when you were doing your research and kind of uncovering that, your, your thoughts on that, and how do the people in the community there think of that, considering one of the residents called everybody up there a magnet of weirdos? Do they seem bothered by kind of this darker side of the region, or is this something they just kind of shrug their shoulders and say, yeah, it's just part of it? You know, to some extent, it's the same as Matthias telling me, never had cell service, never missed it. Like, this is just our way of life here. And so we're, it's normal to us. And that really is true when it comes to, to some extent, you know, a bit of, you know, the restrictions on some of the technology they have there, the slower internet they have there, as well as this darker side that, you know, uh, kind of like shadows the quiet zone that shadows the county and, and, and the people there. Um, there's, there, there, there is this weird feeling of like, because quiet has such like a magnetizing attractive force for so many groups of it being a magnet for weirdos as well. Um, it was kind of ironic who said that it was actually a woman who has electrosensitivity and she's somebody who, you know, a lot of locals are, you know, kind of like raising their eyebrows at like, is this thing called electromagnetic sensitivity? Is it a real disease? It's not recognized by the World Health Organization or other major medical bodies and organizations. Like people who believe that they can sense, you know, satellites overhead, or if I have Wi-Fi or if I have a smartphone or not, that's a bit strange and hard for not just people, locals in, that, in Green Bay to understand, but really for, for anybody to understand. Um, yeah, there's been other <laughs> strange, weird stuff that has happened there over the years, and you touched on some of it. You know, another aspect of the weirdos is, the, or the weirdness of the area, are the conspiracies that tend to swirl around this area because of the Green Bank Observatory. It's just such a, a, a strange contrast when you drive into Green Bank and you're around this bend, and you've been going through hours of you know forest and around switchbacks and up and down mountain passes. And then you're in this verdant field, you know, valley where there's cows and, and beautiful barns and, and, you know, cows grazing. And you round this bend and all of a sudden there, 500 feet tall, is this tangle of white steel beams holding up this huge dish that's 2.3 acres. It's the size of two football fields combined, just in the middle of this field and surrounded by all these other telescopes, but a, about a dozen or half dozen telescopes in all in this field. It's like, how did this get here? Why is this here? Why did our government put $100 million into this, you know, Robert C. Bird Green Bank telescope in the middle of Green Bank? There's gotta be something else going on here besides just science. <laughs> and one of the reasons why people ask that and why there's a lot of conspiracies over thinking that this observatory is doing things more than just science is because the government has done other shady activities in the quiet zone in that area. So the quiet zone, the National Radio Quiet Zone, it's for the sake of not just Green Bank, in fact, but also a nearby town called Sugar Grove, where the U.S. military established its own station because of the quiet zone, where it could do its radio communications back in the 1950s. To this day, it's since evolved into uh, an eavesdropping station used by the National Security Agency, the NSA. It's considered actually our country's largest eavesdropping bug. And from these radio antennas that the government uses in Sugar Grove, they're essentially monitoring the radio noise everywhere else in, in the United States. And that monitoring, that surveillance, that spy work is only possible because it exists in a quiet zone. And the Green Bank Observatory, I told you that there's a quiet zone administrator. She's administering the quiet zone 
not on just behalf of the observatory, but also on behalf of Sugar Grove. So there really is a link between Green Bank Observatory and the Sugar Grove Military Station and the spy work that's happening there. And, and that makes a lot of locals think, maybe the Green Bank telescopes aren't just doing science. You know, could they actually be listening into our conversations in our homes? Or are they controlling the weather? Or are these telescopes, you know, hiding, are they actually missile silos, secret missile silos that are hiding underneath? Or, you know, can they control the weather? Or is there a massive underground bunker that might connect between Green Bank Observatory and the Sugar Grove Military Station? And that's kind of fed in because you mentioned earlier on that I did a bit of a, a cave dive. Uh, this whole region is just riddled with caves. There's hundreds of miles of caves that go between uh, Pocahontas County and Pendleton County and Greenbrier County, some of the largest caves in the United States are in this area. And so that feeds into this, uh, uh, you know, swirling conspiracy that there might be a cave system linking between Green Bank and Sugar Grove, and maybe also linking to the Greenbrier Resort Hotel. And you as somebody from West Virginia, I'm sure you know about the Greenbrier and about the secret uh, congressional bunker, or not so secret now, that was built underneath the Greenbrier Resort bunker back in the 1950s. Right. And that was a story that was broken, I think, in 1997, a reporter from the Washington Post. I don't remember his name now, but I think he was the one that came and, yeah, and uncovered that that was in the event of a, of a nuclear attack and in the event of a uh, uh, some kind of a, a, a bioterror attack on the country, uh, that Congress would have been evacuated to, to there uh, underground under the Greenbrier. And it was all set up for them to, to run the government. And you can actually go and, uh, and take tours there. Yeah, it, it's really a neat place. And um, anybody that likes history and wants to learn more about that sort of Cold War, post-Cold War period in history, uh, should go check it out, especially people uh, uh, from West Virginia and Virginia and Kentucky and kind of the, the, the Appalachian region. So, Stephen, as we finish up with you today, uh, if someone wants to get in contact with you to talk to you about uh, your career as a journalist, uh, some of the projects that you're working on, or talk to you more about The Quiet Zone, uh, how can they get in contact with you, first of all, and then where can they get copies of your book? Sure. If I can tie off one last loop on that last thought on the Greenbrier, it's that when that article came out in the Washington Post, the author, the reporter quoted a bunch of locals and they were all like, of course, there was a nuclear you know, bunker underneath for Congress. We all knew there was for the past half century. You outsiders who didn't know, which is the same thing that the locals in the Green Bank area say about they know that there's something fishy going on in Green Bank. And so, you know, when the real story comes out about Chicago Grove and Green Bank and the ties, they're like, of course there is. We've always known that there is. Um, uh, let's see. You can get in touch with me through my website, stephenkersey.com, S-T-E-P-H-E-N, Stephen with a P-H, and Kersey is K-U-R-C-Z-Y. Uh, I am on Twitter. My handle is at Stephen Kersey. Uh, I've been on Twitter way too much for what I think is healthy, though, since the book came out. But still, if you want to get in touch with me through Twitter, I'd love to hear from you that way or through email. Um, you can pick up a copy, hopefully, at your local bookstore. If it's not there, please request it, that it be put in the bookstore in a very prominent location with a cover facing out. Um, otherwise, you can find it online, The Quiet Zone, Unraveling the Mystery of a Town Suspended in Silence. It's a terrific book, and not only uh, has Stephen Kersey written a great book about something that uh, even people from West Virginia or living in West Virginia now may know a little bit about, they learn a lot more about the region, about the culture, about really what's going on over there uh, in the Green Bank. 
uh, observatory over in Green Bank, West Virginia, in Pocahontas County, over in the eastern part, far eastern part of the state. Uh, Stephen Kersey has been our guest here today on Now Appalachia. The title of his book is called The Quiet Zone, Unraveling the Mystery of a Town Suspended in Silence. Stephen, it, it's a great book, and as, as someone from West Virginia, as I mentioned to you before we started recording today, and not only is it well-researched and wonderfully written, but you did such a great job of portraying West Virginia and Appalachians accurately, both the good and the bad. So thank you for doing that. Thank you for the time and diligence uh, in portraying the region and the people there uh, accurately. Uh, congratulations on the book. It's really, really a terrific read and really a great uh, contribution to Appalachian studies and Appalachian culture. And appreciate you coming on the program. And we'd love to have you back on soon with your next book to talk more about that. I appreciate all of that so much. Thank, thank you very much. I, I, I very much had the people of West Virginia on my mind as I was writing the book, and I wanted to be fair to them and true to them and to the place where they live. So that means a lot coming from you. Thank you. It's great to be on the show. We want to take a moment as we finish up on this episode of Now Appalachia to give a special shout out to the executive producer of the program and the executive producer of the Authors on the Air Global Radio Network. Her name is Pam Stack. We appreciate Pam's support of this podcast, all the podcasts that we do here on Now Appalachia, as well as all the other podcasts from all the great hosts that are here on the Authors on the Air Global Radio Network. We couldn't do it without Pam's help, and we appreciate all of her work and all of the things that she does behind the scenes to make things happen. We want to also remind you this is a copyrighted podcast that is owned and operated by the Authors on the Air Global Radio Network. Well, that is going to do it for us this time on Now Appalachia, but please come again next time. And in the meantime, stay well and see you someplace soon, I hope. listening to Now Appalachia. This is a copyrighted podcast owned and operated by the authors on the Air Global Radio Network. For questions or comments about this program, and to learn more about the host, Elliot Parker, and his books, visit his website at www.elliotparker.com. Stay tuned. More outstanding podcasts are coming your way next from the authors on the Air Global Radio Network.